Why don't we start with this? <clears throat> You've probably already heard the story of the man who was shipwrecked on a South Pacific island. Of course, he was forced to uh, do all sorts of things to make a life for himself there, how to, how to start a fire, how to collect food, how to, to collect drinking water, how to find shelter from the storm. This is not Tom Hanks, by the way. <clears throat> and finally, after 10 years alone on that island, a passing ship notices the activity on this supposedly uninhabited island, send out a landing party to see what's going on. And what they found on shore was pretty surprising. I mean, this was a man who'd lived alone for nearly a decade, and yet over the years, he had built this, like, village for himself on that shore. And so as a favor, the captain said, you know, we'd like a tour of your, of your little village here before, before we take you on board. And so the man gave him the tour, and they had wandered down through the huts that he had cobbled together with palm fronds and driftwood. And he said, this one, here's my bedroom. And he pulls back a curtain, and there's a, there's a bed in there made of straw. And he says, this is my kitchen. <clears throat> and, you know, there's a fire in there. This is where I do my cooking. And this one here is, 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 is with the open sides is where I sit to watch the sunset and watch for passing ships and, and finally get to the end. And he says, this one here, this is my church. And uh, the captain said, oh, this is really cool. He says, but you know, there's another building over here that you didn't talk about at all. What's that building? He says, oh, that's where I used to go to church. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, there are quite a few possible lessons that could be drawn from that story. (laughs) But the one that I would like for us to concentrate upon this morning is this one. The church is not a building. It's not a building. When Jesus turned to Simon Peter in Matthew 16, 18, and said, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, Jesus was not talking about a basilica in Rome. He was not talking about a hut on a South Pacific island. In fact, he wasn't talking about a building at all. He was talking about a community talking about a fellowship. He was talking about a gathering together of believers. He was talking about the body of Christ. He was talking about people. Even the words that are used in the New Testament to describe the church are all community words. They're people words, like ecclesia, which means literally get called together, or synagogo, from which we get synagogue, which means gathered together, or koinonia, which is often translated fellowship. You'll note that there is no mention of real estate in any of the New Testament words for the church. And really the thing that has made it possible for Christianity to affect billions of people all around the world over the centuries, it's not been bricks and mortar. It's been hearts and minds. God truly loves, first of all, not places, but people. And I think All Peoples has been a classic example of this reality. From its inception, All Peoples has been, let's call it, a nomadic church. It's never owned a building. It's moved from one building to another at the whim of the authorities or the landlord or the neighbors or whatever. And yet, all peoples has thrived, has it not, in this difficult place without a building. So our scripture for this morning, then I should go, nevertheless, nevertheless. You know there's always a nevertheless when there's a blanket statement like that. It does seem that God has a deep love for sacred space. In fact, he dedicated a very substantial portion of Scripture to the details of public places of worship. An example of that is our Scripture for this morning, which is found in Exodus chapter 25 and 
35, these are classic examples of God's care for sacred space. Did you know that when Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God on the top of Mount Sinai, that the very first topic that God wanted to cover with Moses was the topic of sacred space. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 21, 25, verse 1. This is the first thing that God says to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering, and you're to receive the offering from me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. And then in verse 8, and have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern that I will show you. And if you have ever done one of those read-through-the-Bible programs, then you will know that the next eight to ten chapters of Exodus are very challenging to read. And the reason they're challenging to read is because God lays out for Moses, every detail of this tabernacle, and there's all kinds of layers and cubits and exactly this and exactly that, and what things are going to be made of and where the furniture is going to be put and all of these different things. And there's a tendency, I think, at that point in your read through the Bible program to say, enough already, God, okay? <laughs> but you know, if you dig down just a little bit into those chapters, you will find that they contain some of the most profound pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. It's amazing. In fact, did you know that at least six of the seven great I am's of the book of John were prefigured very clearly in the details of the tabernacle? When Jesus said, I am the door, he was probably referring to the curtain that separated the, the holy place from the outer courtyard where the people of Israel, Israel were, the people of God were in, invited in. When you entered that holy place, according to God's plan, on your left, there was a big candelabra and chances are that Jesus was actually standing before the great candelabra in the holy place at Herod's temple when he looked at his listeners and said, I am the light of the world. <clears throat> and then to your right, there's this huge brazen altar. Isn't that a perfect fit for Jesus when he said, I am the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep? And then straight ahead of you, there was the altar of incense, where frankincense and myrrh were burning day and night, sending up this aroma to the Lord in heaven. This is a picture of Jesus when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then there was the curtain that was right before you, the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And that curtain is a clear representation of Jesus when he said, what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, to that holy place, but by me. Remember, this was the very curtain that was torn from top to bottom at the moment of Jesus' death. And you know that I'm just scratching the surface of the symbolism of the tabernacle. Every color, every curtain, every material, every dimension, everything in that tabernacle dripped with the symbolic significance of God. You see, God loves sacred space. And the tabernacle really was only the beginning King David, you know, was a man after God's own heart, and he was obsessed with building a permanent temple for Jehovah in Jerusalem. God didn't let him do it, but he spent the last years of his life gathering the appropriate materials to make that dream a reality. And this week, I accidentally discovered that, you know, David actually wrote a psalm for the dedication of the temple. Isn't that strange? He knew he wasn't going to be there, but he wrote a psalm saying, when that happens, would you please do this one? That's pretty cool, isn't it? God loves sacred space. <clears throat> perhaps the crowning achievement of King Solomon 
was the completion of the temple in 1 Kings. It was a breathtakingly beautiful place, modeled after the tabernacle, but built in stone. It took seven years to build it. The details are all laid out for you in 1 Kings, and it's almost as exacting as the description of the tabernacle in Exodus. And on the day of its dedication, the glory of the Lord was so strong in that place that the, the priests couldn't get close to do their duties there. It's an amazing thing. You know, there's even mention of sacred space in the New Testament. Once a year, at the time of the Passover, Jesus and his family would walk from Nazareth to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast, the feast of the Tabernacle. I did a little examination how far that is. It would be like once a year you walking to Laguna Beach and back to celebrate something in the, in, the, in the temple of God, 70 or 80 miles. And one year when Jesus was 12 years old, he went missing. Remember this? And his parents went looking for him everywhere, and they finally found him where? In the temple. And what did Jesus say to them in Luke 4, 249? He says, why were you searching for me? Did you know that I would be in my father's house? crazy, isn't it? God loves sacred space. And the connection of the church with sacred space has continued down through the centuries, even until today. It's part of our DNA. Some of the most amazing structures ever built, ever built in the history of the world are Christian churches. I have brought some to show you. Take, for example, the Hagia Sophia. This church was built in 537 AD, 1,500 years ago. It still stands as one of the oldest buildings on earth, and for a thousand years, it was also the largest building on earth. Or take the Notre Dame in Paris. It's under restoration now because of a fire a few years ago. It was built on an island in the middle of the Seine River, and it, construction on this started in 1163 AD. Can you imagine this? It was finished only 97 years later. And then there are, there are cathedrals, of course, all across Europe. Uh, everyone is extraordinary in its own way. The next one I wanted to share is the Santa Maria del Fiore, which is found in Florence. This one took 140 years to build. And I love the uh, whimsy of St. Basil's Cathedral in, in um, Moscow. It's become almost a symbol of the Russian Empire. It is so, uh, so crazy and cool, isn't it? Or um, one of my favorite buildings in the whole world is La Sagrada Familia, which is found in Barcelona, Spain. This was the brainchild of a, an architect by the name of Antoni uh, Gaudi. Uh, it was started, construction was started on this uh, cathedral in 1882. Ready? And it's not finished yet. <laughs> they have models, but they haven't quite gotten it done. <laughs> I've also been fascinated by this last one, which is the cathedral in Brasilia, I like it because it looks like the 60s when it was built, and it's just as pretty inside. All these, all these panels on the side are stained glass. When you stand inside, it's like you're, you're in the eye of God. It's, it's an amazing thing. Now, don't worry. We don't have any plans to spend 100 years building La Sagrada Familia here in San Diego. Uh, we're, we're a lot more practical um, than that. Uh, but nevertheless... Uh, I think, it, I think that it, um, nevertheless, uh, we as a church have been nomadic for, for too long. And it's time for us, I think, to look, uh, to bind together and build a home for our church.
Um, in the spirit of this series, which is called Beyond, I've actually titled my sermon this morning, Beyond Homelessness. Beyond Homelessness. This is not the kind of homelessness you're thinking of. It is church homelessness. And I think probably one of the main reasons that I was asked to share with you this morning is because I have spent a good portion of my life, uh, my professional life, um, helping churches find homes. A few years back, a colleague at work shared a rather interesting statistic with me. He said that every Sunday, somewhere between 30 and 40,000 people worship today in church buildings that were facilitated or constructed by Hammond companies. Kind of an interesting number. That's a lot of people. And I share that statistic with a little bit of embarrassment because the truth is that I was a reluctant church builder. Um, I perhaps dwelt a little too firmly on the idea that the church is not a building <laughs> and uh, that people should spend their money on people and not places. And so I was kind of dragged kicking and screaming into, this, uh, into the building of sacred space. The first building I built for a church was a gym. My brother was a member out at uh, Shadow Mountain, and their gym, which was a tent, had blown down, and they were getting ready to spend another million dollars buying another tent so it could blow down in 10 years. And my brother and I looked at each other, and we said, this is nuts. What are they doing? So we went to the church, and we told them that for a little less money, they could have a concrete tilt-up gym. You might have been in that gym. It's 30 years on, and it still hasn't blown away. <laughs> and of course, that was just the beginning. Um, it wasn't long until after that until other churches started to come to us and ask for us for our help, and I, I resisted. I didn't want to be a church builder. Um, I didn't want church building to become an income center for my business. And, and if you think about it, it's kind of a good idea because uh, there's an inherent conflict of interest in that. I, just, I never wanted my next meal to depend upon whether I could convince a church to build a sanctuary. It's just not a good idea. So I played hard to get quite a bit. In fact, I heard through the grapevine once a church told me that I had been mean to them. I felt bad about that. I wasn't purposely mean. I was just playing hard to get. <laughs> and at that point, I said to God, look, I am not going to go out and sell my services to churches. If you want us to help churches, you're going to have to send them to me. Boy, was that a mistake, because <laughs> he kept sending a lot of churches to us. <laughs> and as time went on, it became uh, really obvious to us that there was a real place for ministry in building for churches, because so many churches make huge mistakes when, they, when it comes to their facilities. By their very nature, churches are not real estate companies. They don't have real estate experience. They don't know how to buy it. They don't know whether to buy it. They face tremendous and often bewildering opposition from cities and from the community. They have almost no understanding of cost uh, or something that I like to call intelligent design. And churches, you know, they're often the target of scam artists. Uh, these are people who soak them for overpriced pews or sell them non-existent sound equipment. I've seen both of those things happen. I've known good churches that were ruined because of a uh, misguided building program, and that's just not something I ever want to see. And so little by little, we got more involved with more churches, and I, I have to say that the rewards are not financial. Uh, they're spiritual. Uh, it's a real blessing to watch a church double in size when you finish their facility. It's a real blessing to see a whole community turned around because of a ministry, because of the influence of a ministry in that neighborhood. We've, over the years, exercised almost every uh, real estate model under the sun to help churches get in buildings, into buildings. In fact, 
Uh, one of my co-workers even came up with this unique financial model that allowed us to take one pool of money and use it over and over again to help one church after another to build their sacred space. I want to say, though, however, that the Light Project is the very first time that I have been called to help my own church find a home, and I can't wait to see what God is going to do here. And the challenges that I want to say we face as a church in this enterprise are very similar to the challenges that uh, Moses faced when he went to build a tabernacle 4,000 years ago, similar in, a, in an amazing way. In fact, I want to say that there are three blessings as set in forth in Exodus that are required for any church to succeed in the building of sacred space. There are three blessings that we need here at All Peoples in order to create ourselves a permanent home. The first one I have called the will. A project like this light project of ours is a huge endeavor. And in order for it to be brought to completion, we have to want it. We have to want it with all our heart and soul. Projects like this are never easy. I want to point out that from the first moment that Moses re received his vision of the tabernacle from God on uh, Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 25 until the actual work began on the building of this uh, tabernacle in Exodus chapter 36, there are 11 whole chapters that went by. And uh, they, Moses may not have had permit problems or uh, neighborhood opposition, but you see, even Moses' progress uh, was not without its problems. We're going to be looking at that in a minute. But still, when the tabernacle did finally get underway, it was made very clear by God through Moses that it was to be an act of will. Look at Exodus 35.5. This is what it says. From what you have... Take an offering for the Lord. Then it says, everyone who is willing. Please say that with me. Everyone who is willing is to bring the Lord an offer of gold and silver and bronze, etc. Verse 20. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence, and everyone who was? Everyone who was willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting. And verse 22. All who were Willing, men and women alike came, and they brought gold jewelry and brooches and earrings and rings and ornaments, and they all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. And then verse 25, and all the women who were willing and who had the skill spun the goat hair. And verse 29, and all the Israelite men and women who were brought what kind of an offering? A free will offering for all of the work that the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. And then in verse 30, in chapter 36, verse 2, Moses summoned these two guys, Bezalel and Aholiab, and every person who was willing to come and do the work. So, you get the picture? Is there a little bit of a theme going on here? <laughs> the only way that God wanted to build a tabernacle with Moses was with the community of the willing, not the reluctant. Not the coerced, the willing. And the same is true for us here at All Peoples of the Light Project. You know, no one's going to come to you and audit your tax returns to make sure you've given your 10%. No one's going to lock the doors to the sanctuary and say, you can't leave till we've got enough money for whatever. We're not going to sell indulgences. That's a problem the church has been through. Uh, we're not going to promise you a ticket out of purgatory for a certain number of candles. This is a project of the willing alone. And the truth is 
that a project of this magnitude will take the collective will of as many of us as all peoples as we can muster. But if your heart is not moved, if you're not feeling God's call on you, if you're not willing, that's between you and God. I often think of a friend at, at work who was singing in the choir at a large East County church. And one day there was this new guy who came into the bass section. My friend, his name's Steve, turned to this guy, asked, I said, oh, hey, are you new to the church? He says, yeah, yeah. He says, I'm new. He says, I used to go, and he named another large church in the East County that was in the middle of a building program. And he said, you know, I, I used to go over there, but I got so tired of them always ta- asking for my money to build that building, I just decided to come here. <clears throat> And my friend, who's not known for his tact, looked at this guy and he says, so where do you think all this came from? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Still, it's not very nice, but it's a valid question. Um, in the coming months, you know what? We're going to talk a little bit about the Light Project. And our hope and prayer is that the collective will of this congregation will coalesce around the vision of a permanent home. For all peoples. But you know what? If God's not calling you, and if you're really not one of the willings, don't go to another church. We're going to love you anyway. Stick around. You know, you might get some of the benefits and you don't have to move. <laughs> if the light project is to be, it will be a product of the collective and sacrificial will of God's people here at all peoples. And that's what he's calling us to. But there's more. There are three blessings that are needed to create the permanent home for all peoples. First, the will. And next, the skill. Is this supposed to change behind me? Oh, there we go. There comes the skill. In uh, Exodus chapter 35, verse 10, it says, all who were skilled among you should come and make everything that the Lord has commanded. And God went out of his way to choose certain people to do his work. In verse 30, he calls Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, and he fills him with the spirit of God in verse 31 with skill and ability and knowledge of crafts. And then in chapter 36, verse 2, Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come to do the work. So in building the tabernacle, God was calling together the, a community of craftsmen to make it happen. You know, one of the coolest church projects that I have ever been involved with was out in Ramona. And having built for a lot of churches, I have to say that one of the challenges we have faced as a builder <coughs> is that Every time, somebody from the congregation will come up and say, oh, yeah, I, I want to do the plumbing. I, I want to do the plumbing. And they'll say, I want to do the roofing. And it sounds like a good thing, but my experience has told me that usually these people are after the money, not the uh, charity. <laughs> and, and so I always say, that's great. You know what? We're, we're, we're going to have a, a bid next month, and I'll put you on the list. And almost always they kind of walk out sad. Because they weren't interested in actually doing anything for the church. They were interested in making money on it. I've got this microphone sitting on my cheek. Move that a little. But this church in Ramona was the exception to that rule. There were all kinds of people in that church who were skilled in construction. And I would say there are six or seven trays that were done entirely for free by members of that church. They brought their skill as their willing hearts as skilled craftsmen and did work. The guy who did the tile in the bathrooms, not only did he do the labor for nothing, he actually donated the tile as well. This was an amazing blessing to me, you know, as, as the builder, to see God's hand at work in a congregation like that with the generosity of his people. Last year, God laid a certain scripture on my heart. Um, <sighs> which is kind of my theme verse for, chapter, for uh, 2022. It was a parable of the rich man in Luke chapter 12. You might remember the story. There's this rich man. 
He has a, an amazing year, gets a bumper crop. He thinks to himself, what am I going to do? I'm, I, I don't even have enough room to store all of my crops. And he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns, and I'm going to build bigger barns, and there I'm going to store all my grain and all my goods, and then I'm going to say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And of course, verse 20 is the moral of the story. God says to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you, and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And the crux, verse 21, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. That was a phrase that stuck in my head last year. I went around to a whole bunch of people, and I said, so what does it mean? What does it mean to be rich toward God? And I got all kinds of answers. I think the easiest one is give your money, and that's easy. It just didn't feel sufficient to me. Another person said, well, you should cultivate intimacy with God, and, and that's true. I'm not sure that it's necessarily in this, in this peril, but it's true. None of the answers I got satisfied me until one day when I was having a horrible day at work. And I don't remember what it was all. It was supply chain problems, employee problems, uh, client problems, something. And I walked out of the office just to gather my, my thoughts. And I said, what am I, I'm saying to myself, what am I doing here? Why am I working like this? All my friends are retiring. I, 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 I just need to, to shut this thing down and, 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 and take it easy. And it was that moment when I went, eat, drink, and be merry. <laughs> oh, geez, God. <laughs> and I realized that the mistake that the rich man was making was not so much a mistake of money, but purpose. What he was doing wasn't so much not giving what he owed to the Lord, but, but, but quitting, stepping, pulling his skill set out of the, of the marketplace. And to some degree, I think that needs to be true for all of us. And that, that, that's when I looked around and I said, just a second, I have several projects, the light project being one of them, that need my skill set. And quitting would do, cost more than money. Uh, there's this Christian school I'm working with in North County who I dearly love. Uh, I wish I could send my grandchildren there, but it's too far away. And um, I found out they, they were making a lot of really bad facilities decisions. They'd met with a public school architect. They had designed some, let's call them pie-in-the-sky buildings uh, that they couldn't afford. I, I, I looked at the plans that they gave to me, and I said, you realize this is a $200 million school for 500 students? That's $4 million for every student at your school? I'm thinking this isn't going to happen. And then I told them, look, if you can let go of this and that and use a little intelligent design, it's one of my favorite words, well, then we can put together a very nice workable school for you for half that amount. But here's the reality. There's no way that I could ever give a school $100 million, but I can save them $100 million by sticking with it. And, you know, I can give them my expertise. I can give them my experience. I can save them a lot of money. So you see, my skills are more valuable to that school than my limited funds. I'm hoping, in a sense, to do the same for the Light Project. And to some degree, this will be true for many of us here as we set our shoulders to this plow. There are plenty of other skills besides real estate that you can lend to this project. You may not be able to weave goat hair or uh, tan sea cow hides like they do in Exodus, but you may know a whole lot about mic uh, sound systems, microphones. We need that expertise. One of the churches we built some years back had a member who was a master woodworker, and he built the most beautiful hardwood cross that still stands in front and center of that, uh, of that sanctuary. This is a testimony to the kind of skills that God 
has given to his people. And even as I say this right now, I'm sure there are a little tugs on some of the hearts in this room, knowing there is a skill that they can com, uh, contribute to the building of the house of God. I am praying that this new home for all peoples will be a place of beauty. Because you see, of all of us, the skills that we have to bring. Of course, I do have to add a footnote here. We have to come to this with humility. We may not be able to use your macrame skills <laughs> or finger painting skills. Uh, not all of us are Bezalels or Aholiabs when it comes to craftsmanship, and so we need to be willing to acknowledge this reality. But still, it's a good thing to think about what each of us can contribute in a way of skill to the building of the house of God. So we need to take full advantage of this tabernacle in moment in the life of this church. Uh, we need the will, and we need the skill, and finally, we need the bill. I was a Presbyterian pastor but I didn't always deliver three uh, rhyming points. Uh, to build a sacred space is a costly endeavor, and never more so than right now. And the truth is that whenever anyone builds sacred space, someone has to foot the bill. And beginning in Exodus chapter 35, verse 5, Moses set forth this long list of things that were going to be needed to, to build the tabernacle. I'm not going to read them because I'm already out of time. So we're going to move on from there. Um, but I want to just say this. The list is laden with cost and with sacrifice and with symbolism. What God was asking of his people was sacrificial giving. The, the children of Israel were nomads. They had no place to call home. They had no olive crop to look forward to next year. And yet they were supposed to give their olive oil to Moses. These were possessions that I'm sure they were thinking they were going to use to set up their new home in the promised land when they finally got there. But they gave them up for the tabernacle. It's an amazing thing to think about it. And I alluded to this to before, and you wonder what it was that motivated the people of Israel to do what they did. Um, and I realized that one of the things that took place between Exodus chapter 25 and Exodus 35 is an incident in Exodus chapter 32. Moses was done with his 40 days and 40 nights on top of Mount Sinai. He's coming down the mountain with his assistant, Joshua, and they hear a sound. Remember this? And, Mo and Joshua says, I think, I think there's a war in the camp. And Moses says, it sounds like singing to me. And uh, it was singing. <laughs> um, it was actually a huge party. Because while Moses had been on top of that mountain, the children of Israel had made a golden calf. And Aaron had told them, this is the God that brought you down out of Egypt. And they were having a wild pagan party in the worship of this new God down there at the base of the mountain while Moses was on top with God. And Moses was furious. And God was contemplating starting all over again with a different set of chosen people. And there was this huge conflict in the camp. And there was a plague. And people died. But you know what? I think in the end, it was that event that became a come-to-Jesus moment for the people of Israel. They saw the sin that, well, that they had done, and they turned to the Lord, so much so that when the call went out to build the tabernacle, there was this extraordinary generosity that came out of the children of Israel. In contributing to this work, they were setting aside the idolatry of the golden calf. They were setting aside the idolatry of the stuff they might need to settle in a new place, and they were putting their trust entirely 
in, in God. And they gave, and they gave, and they gave until Exodus 36, where it says the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. And finally, the skilled craftsmen go to, go to Moses and say, could you please stop? And then Moses sends out this order. And this is in Exodus chapter 36. He says, no man or woman is to make anything else of an offering to the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing more because they already had more than enough to do all the work. And I'm praying that in a year or two, Robert's going to stand up here and do this same thing. And he's going to have to say, no man or woman should give any more to the Light Project because what we have is already more than enough for the work that we have to do. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? And I want to tell you a little secret. It wouldn't be the first time. Years ago, my niece, who was Dana Sanders, came to me. She asked me if I would be willing to support her and her new husband as missionaries. Her husband is Joel Sanders, and Joel had pulled up roots in the distant land of Texas, which is not quite the same as Ur of the Chaldees, but close. And he was deciding to plant a church in this alien city known to some of us today as San Diego. And because I love my niece and I trust her, I signed up to monthly support for Dana and Joel Sanders. And every quarter or so, I would send a check off to this new church. I think it was called all peoples. <laughs> and uh, that was for the support of Dana and for their ministry. And then five or six years passed, and I got a letter from that church. And the church in the letter said something like this. Thank you so much for supporting Joel and Dana for these years. We could not have done it without you. But at this time, we have become a fully self-supporting church, and your monthly donation is no longer required. Can you believe that? I mean, who's ever heard of a ministry sending out a check that says, a letter that says, don't send us any more money? All Peoples has already done it. And come on, we got to get Roger, Robert to do that again in just a couple of years. <laughs> well, let's close with this. I've been involved with this now for years, with the Light Project. And it's been a tough entitlement uh, phase. <laughs> We've been to a lot of late-night community meetings. And at one of those meetings, a woman stood up at the microphone, and she said, we know these people are lying. She used that kind of tone quality. We know they're lying. Nobody would put all this money into build a church. It's going to be something else. It's going to be a convention center. It's going to be a, a homeless, homeless center. And she had a whole list of the nefarious things that we were going to be doing in this building that we were trying to get uh, built. And I, I got to say, at the time, I was pretty annoyed with that woman. I mean, it's not nice to be called a lawyer, law, a liar, or a lawyer for that matter. Sorry. <laughs> it, it was mind-boggling to me that there really were people in this world who had no concept whatsoever of the importance of, of, of value of sacred space. And I wanted to grab that lady by her collar and say, we're not lying. There are people who, who are, feel so strongly about following Jesus that they will give sacrificially to make this place a reality. We are really just building a church, not a convention center, not a residential facility, a church. There's no profit here. No money, anyway. But then I cooled down, and I thought about it some more, and I realized that, in a way, he was right. Because what we are building is a whole lot more than a little C church building. It's a whole lot more than bricks and mortar and stained glass windows. It's a whole lot more than a place for people to show up twice a year for Christmas and Easter. And it's a whole lot more than a headquarters for marrying and burying or the burning of candles when you feel guilty. At least metaphorically, this church is not just a building. It's a hospital. It's a place where people can come for spiritual and emotional and physical healing and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said he came to, to heal us, to, came for the, not for the healthy, but for the sick. We're building a school 
metaphorically, of course. We're not going to charge tuition. We're not going to compete with San Diego State University. But we are building a place where people can come and sit at the feet of Jesus and be steeped in his holy word and instructed in the timeless wisdom of God. This is more than a building. We're building a chrysalis. We're building a place where lowly caterpillars like you and me can crawl in on the ground and be transformed into spirit-filled butterflies, winged creatures who rise above the problems of this world. We're building a launching pad. This is like Cape Canaveral, a place where people who are called by God can be launched into the world to spread the gospel from nation to nation all around the world. And we're building a heart. You know, one of the more common misconceptions of the modern church age has been this idea that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. We've all heard somebody say that. You can worship God all by yourself at home. And this is, I suppose, conceptually possible, but it's not biblical, and it's not likely. Hebrews 10, 24 says, do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Claiming that you're a Christian, that you don't go to church, is a lot like saying you're a red blood cell, but you never visit the heart, you know? Uh, It's technically correct, I suppose. You can be a red blood cell on a slide somewhere in a laboratory, but it's a factually bankrupt idea because in order for a red blood cell to function in its intended purpose, it has to return regularly to the heart. It's in the heart that it gains the power to absorb the the oxygen and the nutrients that it's designed to carry out to the whole rest of the body, and the same is true for all of us. It is in the house of God that we gain the power to carry life and light into the communities that surround us. It is in the house of God that we will be built together into the body of Christ. It is in the house of God that we can be encouraged and inspired to live in accordance with the purposes of God. We're not building a pile of dead stones. We're building a living organism, a hospital, a school, a chrysalis, a launching pad, the heartbeat of our community. As it says in 1 Peter 2.5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is us. We are the church. Let's build this church a home. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the vision that you have given this church. I thank you for the miracle of the land that is sitting over there. I pray for you. For, I pray that you would be moving the hearts of authorities to give us the permissions that we need to build that place. I pray you'd be moving the hearts of these people that we can give in a way that will make this, this vision a reality. And I just pray these things in Jesus' name.